Catch them all, Joe. You'll never hit a bigger home run in your life. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to episode four of Touch Em All Podcast. I'm Jordan Leopold here with Alex Horowitz. Unfortunately, our good friend Jack Weinberger is out today. He has a family matter to take care of. All is well with him, though, and he'll be back next week. Alex, it's good to see you. Jordan, great to see you, man. Always good to be back on the podcast. You know, Jack, we miss you, man. But, you know, we'll see you. Um, I'll probably see you tomorrow night, actually, for dinner. Um, but we'll see you on the podcast um, in a week or two. Um and anyway, you know, great to be here um, with Jordan, as always, and a lot to talk about today. I think we're going to focus mostly on the NBA today, as well as MLB. Um, you know, it's pretty weird to be doing this podcast without our good co-host, Jack. It kind of seems like, uh, so for those of you who don't know, we used to have another podcast that we did at Muhlenberg College, but then Alex graduated and Jack transferred and it dissolved. So this kind of feels like, the old podcast without Jack when he went to Maris that semester. A absolutely, little bit. Absolutely. No, yeah, Jordan, it's crazy. I mean, we, I think we had a couple uh, solo episodes, or by solo, I mean, just the two of us without Jack, um, probably two or three episodes, like January, February of 2019. So, I mean, to be fair, that was only last year, which is crazy, but it was still like, you know, a year and a half ago. But yeah, no, it's, I mean, this podcast, you know, it's not the same without Jack Weinberger. So, he he is a uh, he is a legend of the Touch Them All podcast, but rest assured he will be back. You know next time we record, uh, and we are looking forward to that. But for now, um, Jack, we are hoping you're listening um, whenever this is published. And you know all we can say is you know looking forward to having you back. And Jordan and I will roll with you know what we have uh, for today and go from there. Of course. Now, I think we're absolutely going to have to include some college football lines just to keep up with the tradition. We can't not include it. So a- stay tuned at the end. We have our uh, we have our expert, Jack, giving us all his picks. Alex is not too shabby himself. I, on the other hand, I'm more of like a basketball, baseball guy. I don't know the college football as well. It's not my forte, but we'll roll with it. Anyways, big, big week going on in the NBA. If you guys remember what I said um, on episode three, I mentioned how there's only about a month of uh, an off season, so everything was gonna happen fast. Boy, was I right! This is an old stat that happened, uh, I guess, a few days ago, but uh, so it's outdated. But they said 85% of the NBA's roster spots were filled within the first 30 hours of free agency. That's absurd. Are you surprised by how fast the market is moving? Um, so I have two points here that I want to address just about NBA free agency uh, for the 2020 offseason. I will agree that I, I'm i not surprised that the moves are going fast. I mean, the offseason began probably a few days ago, um, like mid-November or mid to late November. And meanwhile, the season begins on December 22nd, I believe. So that's roughly a month of an offseason. And that's between free agency, NBA draft, training camp, and preseason. Normally you have training camp starts in a couple weeks. Yeah, exactly. So what I'm saying is you have training camp, draft, free agency, all within the same month. Um, but normally that process takes you know within three to four months, so it's more spread out. But going back to the point of free agency, yes, everything is kind of jammed into one jam-packed week, two weeks, whatever you want to call it. Um, 
So I'm not surprised at the rate at which signings are being made. What I am surprised is that the contracts, and look, I know it's 2020, the world is evolving, the economy is evolving, contracts are getting larger than ever. The thing I'm kind of surprised about is the specific players that are getting these max deals. Uh, I'm just going to throw out a name. You know, For example, one of the biggest deals of the offseason thus far was Brandon Ingram signing a max extension, re-signing with the Pelicans um, five years, around $158 million. I'm no math whiz, but that's a lot of money. Um, look, Brandon Ingram, he was an all-star last year for the first time in his career. He was a, probably a, a contender for comeback player of the year. He had a kind of a shaky uh, career with the Los Angeles Lakers, really reinvented himself um, down in uh, the Big Easy. Um, that being said, Jordan, like Brandon Ingram, you know, no disrespect. He's a, he's a great player. But for him to get a five-year, 158-mil contract, is that kind of a testament to his amazing ability as a basketball player? Or is that just saying, like, any, you know, any average or any all-star player is going to get a max deal worth 150-mil plus in this, in you know, in today's market? Look, there is no need to knock on Brandon Ingram. He's not an average player. He's one of the better players in the league. I believe he averaged 23-6 and six with the Pelicans. So when you say he reinvented himself, I don't think he reinvented himself. I think he just didn't flourish in the same kind of system with LeBron James, and he didn't mesh with the players the Lakers had and the, the different offensive schemes that the Lakers were running. I think he's in a better system, and he was given the chance to eat more minutes and expect to be that first or second scoring option on the young Pelicans team. So I think that's a testament to him, his work ethic, and obviously we saw the improvement he made his first all-star team this year. That being said, uh, Ingram actually joined Ben Simmons and Jamal Murray as the three members of the 2016 draft class to get a max deal. And personally, I think all those guys are highly overrated. If you ask me the best guy out of that draft class, or excuse me, out of those three, I would say Jamal Murray. I think they're all a bit overrated. Jamal Murray is the best player there. What do you think? Yeah, Jordan, I agree with you. I mean, I think that statement is especially especially certain after the 2020 playoffs in the bubble when Jamal Murray, he went absolutely off against the um, the Utah Jazz and I believe the was it the Los Angeles Clippers. Um, Jamal Murray, he dropped a couple of 50-point games, if my memory serves me, if my, if my oh, memory serves me correct. Um, yeah. I know he obviously was not that dominant, or he was not as dominant in the regular season, but he was still a very uh, high-caliber player. And then, of course, he he boosted up to another level in the postseason. Um, that's probably a sign of things to come for Jamal Murray and the Denver Nuggets. They're going to be a, I don't want to say a threat in the Western Conference because I think it's the Los Angeles Lakers conference to lose. I don't see any other team contending, even the Clippers. That being said, I think Denver's going to be a, a lock for the playoffs for the next, you know, several years. Um, again, that's no knock. That's that's no knock against Murray or the Nuggets. It's more just a statement of saying, "Wow, the Lakers are so good." He put on quite a show, made a lot of headlines in the bubble, for uh, for more than just on the field. But uh, that's that's another discussion. Um, anyway, so I want to move on to a couple other players we haven't mentioned yet. Jason Tatum and Donovan Mitchell both signed mega extensions, five years, $163 million, with uh, the ability to get to $195 million in incentives. 
If you were to start an NBA franchise with one of those players, who would you pick? Jason Tatum or Donovan Mitchell? Man, that's a tough question, and thank you for bringing that up because I think these are the two of the uh, the premier uh, next wave of stars in the NBA. I know Jason Tatum and Mitchell both had success with their respective teams in the 2020 playoffs. I also want to just give a quick shout-out to Donovan Mitchell. He's a Westchester kid. Uh, he's from Elmsford, New York, about 10 minutes from my house. Um, so got to represent the 914, but I got to give the edge to Tatum here. I mean, he is the leader of a Boston Celtics team, which is also headlined by players such as you know Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown. Um, Celtics had a phenomenal year, even though they fell short in the playoffs against um, Toronto. Um, Tatum's going to be... He's going to be an MVP contender for the next the next handful of years. I think he's going to lead the Celtics to one of the top teams in the East over the next half decade, maybe even the next decade. However, I do not think they're going to be able to compete with at least this this generation of the Lakers. I mean, you put LeBron James and Anthony Davis, the reigning champs, and you add players like Montrezl Harrell, uh, Wes Matthews, and Marc Gasol. It's not a competition, Jordan. I know the Brooklyn Nets might be um, a contender as well, with if, especially if they get James Harden. But um, not to get too sidetracked here from the Jason Tatum conversation. Tatum and Mitchell, I think they're two of the brightest stars in the league. If you put them in a game of one-on-one, I think the results would be split 50-50. You know, it's that close. But I'm going to give the edge to Jason Tatum here. Um, you know, bad respect to both players. They're, um, they're both incredible. And I... Um, I'm really excited to watch them develop over the next handful of years in the NBA, in the NBA as they continue their careers. But Jordan, what are your thoughts here? I mean, Mitchell or Tatum, and then how do you, I guess, how do you see their careers uh, kind of playing out over the next maybe five or so years? Look, you can't go wrong with either one of those guys. I mean, I believe Mitchell was taken 13th overall. He was he was a surprise of the draft. Tatum went second overall at Boston. Um, Look, they're both phenomenal players. There's no way around it. I used to think uh, Tatum was overrated, and he, he shut my mouth quickly with his play. Um, I think Tatum's more accomplished at this point. I think Mitchell still has a little bit more to prove. That being said, I kind of like Donovan Mitchell's game just slightly more. I think he's a little bit more versatile than Jason Tatum. But, you know, they're both very comparable players. They kind of have similar skill sets. Obviously, both from the same draft class. I think you could make a case for either of them. Any any GM, any team would be lucky to have them. Um, that being said, I kind of want to transition into uh, some other news. One of their, excuse me, one of Tatum's teammates, former teammates, Gordon Hayward, just signed a deal four years and reported $120 million with the Charlotte Hornets. If you're Michael Jordan and the Hornets, aren't you a little bit concerned with uh, Hayward's injury past? Like, isn't it just a little bit concerning? I know the Knicks wanted Hayward, and personally as a Knicks fan, I would have loved to see him there. But I kind of don't mind that somebody else gave him a $100 million contract because I'm a little worried about his, about his injury. Yeah, Jordan, I think the injury is definitely a cause for concern. He had a devastating, uh, I believe it was an ACL injury in his first ever game with the Celtics a couple years ago. That being said, I you know I, I loved Gordon Hayward when he was with Utah, when he was with the Celtics, and especially when he was with Butler in college. 
Um, for those who don't know, just a quick uh, fun story here. When Butler made the 2010 NCAA championship, I was probably in, I think I was in 7th or 8th grade at the time, and I didn't know a ton about college basketball, but I was doing some research for my bracket, and I saw that, oh, Butler has won 25 games in a row. had no idea they were in a kind of a mediocre conference, and lo and behold, they made the finals. So that's my claim to fame. I had them making the championship against uh, Michigan State, I think, and they ended up losing, or maybe Kansas. Anyway, they ended up losing to Duke, but I'm proud of myself to this day that I called up Butler Prick. And so Gordon Hayward was the leader of that squad, and he's going to be forever a Butler legend. And he's a Utah Jazz and a Celtic legend, too. That being said, I, I, I don't know what the Hornets are doing here. I mean, Gordon Hayward, I know he's still a young player, but I think the peak of his career is probably past. I think he probably peaked in Boston, and he's kind of on the downhill. I mean, credit to him. He earned every cent of this contract with Charlotte. But I think between his injury history and just the kind of the flow of his career, I think he's kind of on the decline. Um, again, I know he's a young player. I just don't think you know it's a good move for the Hornets, especially because who knows four years down the road when he's – in the last year or two of his deal, who knows if he's even going to be an all-star level player anymore. I mean, Charlotte, to begin with, is not that great of a team. I know they just signed, uh, they just drafted LaMelo Ball. And, you know, besides him, they have a very young lineup. I don't see them winning more than, I mean, this is for an 82-game season. In an 82-game season, I don't, I don't see them winning more than 35 games. 72-game season, you know, Adjust that by a, a few wins. I don't think they'll make the playoffs. And if they do, they'll be a 7 or 8 seed and lose to Milwaukee or Boston in 4 or 5 games. Again, Gordon Hayward, like he deserves his contract. But I think the Hornets could have used their um, money in a better way. You know, I think it's pretty ironic that Kemba Walker, the longtime Charlotte Hornet, is now and has been with the Celtics as Gordon Hayward comes over from Boston. And uh, I think I think Lamelo Ball is an upgrade at the point guard for sure. I mean, I'm not I'm not gonna sit there like you know Levar Ball and call him like, you know, a, one of the top players in the NBA. He's <laughs> not. But he, I think he has one of the highest upsides of any draft prospect this year and in recent years too. Yeah, definitely, Jordan. And um. I think, again, even though LeVar Ball may say that his son or one of his sons is the best point guard in the league, I don't think LaMelo Ball is going to reach that status status yet. I think he could be a very good point guard in the next you know, five or so years, but he's a rookie. He didn't even play college basketball. He played overseas in Australia. Going to be very much a transition period. And honestly, you have to factor in. This is not a normal season. There's going to be very few, if, at, if any, spectators at games. There's going to be a shortened season. Games might be postponed because of COVID. This is probably the most difficult season to come in as a rookie. So you're taking the COVID situation and putting that on top of the usual, you know, usual transition that a rookie has to make into the league. Hey, I think it's worth Um, noting that, uh, excuse me, LeVar's middle child, LiAngelo. LeVar did get one thing correct. LiAngelo did lead uh, basketball in steals. Unfortunately, it was off the court, but he still led the league in steals. Uh, and I, Hey, Jordan, you know what's going to be interesting? Uh, I'm not sure if you ever saw the uh, ESPN first day clip of when LeVar Ball and Stephen oh, A. Smith uh, were on Obviously. the show together. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's going to be really interesting that – so now that Michael Jordan, the um, the owner of the Charlotte Hornets, his point, his new point guard for the Hornets is LaMoa Ball, and his father is LeVar Ball. 
So technically, or not technically, that that literally means that LeVar Ball is going to be playing uh, and possibly be living, if not visiting frequently Charlotte, North Carolina, where Michael Jordan's team is. So maybe they'll finally get that one-on-one game in. And, I mean, maybe LeVar Ball will uh, will back up his words and uh, beat MJ in a game of Look, one-on-one. If, if LeVar beats MJ one-on-one, I'm beating MJ one-on-one. Come on. Hey, uh, hey! I mean, Lamar Ball said he said one on one never lost. So you got to take the man's word. Yeah, for but that. who's he playing? Not the goat. I mean, come on, come on. Uh, just actually another uh, fun fact about uh, Lamar Ball. Um, while we're on the topic, did you know that he was actually once a member of the New York Jets practice squad uh, back in the day? I did know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, interesting. Um, the Jets could really use him now. A tough, <laughs> tough season uh, over there in uh, over there at MetLife, but. That's a topic for next week. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, the NBA has so many, so many things going on. Before we uh, before we kind of move on to the, our next topic, I think we should just briefly touch on some more contracts. So De'Aaron Fox signed a $163 million deal, and so did Bam Adebayo for five years. Both have incentives up to one ninety five. There, there's just so many things going on in this whirlwind of an offseason. We can't really address everything. But I think one of the most important things that needs to be mentioned is the Chris Paul trade to the Phoenix Suns. Not only do you build one of the best backcourts in basketball with Chris Paul and um, Devin Booker, Oklahoma City now has 18 first-round picks from now until 2027. I, I, I don't think they understand that you need five guys on the court and you need 15 guys on the roster to play basketball, but uh, they're doing it right. I think in a f- I think they keep most of the draft picks they acquire, and you know, out of those 18, they draft most of the guys. Some of them they package around for a star. Obviously, now is not the time for that. I'm all for draft picks. Trust me. Being a Nick fan and watching James Dolan trade all our picks, it makes me furious. I'm happy the Thunder are getting picks. But at what point does it just become enough? They have 18 picks in seven years. That's that's just the first round. Jordan, I, I kind of like what uh, Sam Presti and the OKC Thunder are doing. I mean, I, I totally agree, obviously, that you need 15 rostered guys. And you need five guys on the, on the floor at any time. You need bodies. But this is a team that wasn't... This is a team that wasn't going to contend anyway. They'll, they'll be a rebuilding team for the next few years. I mean, obviously, they never won a championship in OKC, but they had their they had their time, you know, starting with Harden, Westbrook, Durant, and then going to just Westbrook and Durant, and then just going to Westbrook. They were one of the best teams in the NBA, you got to say, for the past, you know, 10 years. Um, but OKC, I mean, look, they're in a rebuilding stage, and it really doesn't matter that... They traded away Chris Paul because even with Chris Paul, I don't think they would have been a contender in the, at all. At all, but I want to focus on the Phoenix Suns for a bit. I mean, we all saw what the Phoenix did in the NBA bubble when they went eight and zero, or maybe nine and zero, and they still missed the playoffs. And again, I, it was obviously a very very small sample size, small window into what they can do. But it was definitely still still a sign of what they can do, you know, going forward. I mean, Devin Booker, he well, won. They had pieces um, there. Did, did Devin Booker win MVP of the bubble, or was that Dame Lillard? I think it was Dame. Anyway, Devin Booker put on a show, man. He was unstoppable. I mean, Phoenix, Phoenix is going to be, I don't want to go as far to say as a contender in the in the West, but they're definitely going to be a playoff squad. I think they'll be and, a contender. They will. Okay, so even though, I mean, even if they make the playoffs, 
they could do damage in the playoffs. So, quick, quick question I have for you, Jordan. Chris Paul, obviously, first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, he has not won a finals yet, but he is easily a top 10, if not top 5, point guard of all time. Um, he's a top 10. But he's, he's top 10. He's obviously on the tail end of his career. Um, do you think Chris Paul, aside from like his you know mentorship for the young Phoenix team, how do you think his um, how do you think his I guess his mentorship will actually translate to skill as a as a veteran player on the court for Phoenix? You know, playing alongside DeAndre Ayton, Devin Booker, and uh, and company. Well, you saw what Chris Paul did last year, assuming a similar a similar role with the Oklahoma City Thunder. Now everybody thought Paul was kind of washed. And uh, they didn't end up giving much up in that trade. I mean, you look at what Chris Paul did on the court last year with the Thunder. He was an all-star. And this is from a guy who you expected to be kind of on a downward, a downward spiral in the end of his career. Um, obviously, he still hasn't won a ring yet. And I don't honestly think he's going to win a ring being with the, uh, the Phoenix Suns. But you talk about this mentorship role he had. It's kind of the same role he's been filling the last couple of seasons, especially last year with that young Oklahoma City team. The Oklahoma City massively overperformed. They had many talented players, you know, like, you know, Gilbert Alexander and Steven Adams, uh, to name a few, but uh, Chris Paul single-handedly carried them to the playoffs. We've seen Chris Paul's importance before. Another instance of this was in the uh, Western Conference Finals a few years ago when Chris Paul missed Game 7 with Houston because he was injured, and the Golden State Warriors ended up winning the series and eventually the finals. Had Chris Paul been healthy, I think this could that could have been a different series. I think we, you know, history may be different. Anyways, we've seen Paul's impact on the court. His, his play is not declining. I think having a, you know, a bona fide playmaker like him makes it easier for the younger guys like uh, DeAndre Aiden and even Mikel Bridges, who isn't really much of an offensive threat. He's more like a 3 and D guy. But I think I think Chris Paul is one of those guys who makes everybody better. You, he helps you utilize what you have because he's just such a good playmaker. And he's not just the playmaker. He can give you, tw- you know, 20 points in a game. He's a knockdown shooter. Yeah, no, I so I, I I didn't mean to say that he's not a good player anymore. I just think that he's not he's not only a only a superstar anymore. Yes. While he is still a great Chris player, Chris Paul is on I, the I, decline, I, I, but he is he's aging very well. Oh, absolutely! I think at this point in his career, where he's a seasoned veteran, he has so much to offer just from the mental side of the game. Yeah. You know, to to one of the youngest teams in the league. Um, Alex, one thing I want to just touch up on quickly before we uh, change subjects. So, uh, I'm sure most Warrior fans know that Clay Thompson is probably out for the season. Given Thompson's injury, it led many to speculate why the Warriors picked James Wiseman instead of Lamella Ball, who they could have slid in at the guard to pair with Stephen Curry. Uh, I kind of have two points here. Do you- is there anything that really shocked you about the NBA draft this year? And do you think that Golden State made the right call selecting James Wiseman? Um, so in terms of shocks in the draft, I mean, 
no pick is going to go as you not sorry not every pick is going to go as as you expect but overall no huge no huge shocks for me um i think you might be a little more in tune with the college basketball game than i am so while i know the top prospects i wouldn't call myself a bona fide expert on those on those players um that being said i think you got to look at it from the term of look golden states while they want to win now they're looking at this long term too Clay Thompson, you know, will hopefully be back for the 2021-22 season. So, but you're also drafting a player in the draft, you know, for the long term. You're not just drafting a player for the short term. Of course, if they, if they wanted to only focus on 2021, yeah, then they, they, then they would probably would have drafted um, LaMelo Ball. But you draft James, James Wiseman, um, who is, you know, for, for a while considered the first, considered the first overall uh, prospect in the 2020 class, he's going to fill a hole at center for Golden State. They haven't had a premium center in a while. I know they had Andrew Bogut. I guess Draymond Green is kind of a he's kind of a hybrid power forward center, um, but they haven't had a true dominant big man in a while. So you plug Wiseman in at center along with Steph Curry, Andrew Wiggins, Draymond Green. They they just signed Kelly Oubre. This is going to be a 50 win team, Jordan. Um, I know Golden State obviously felt flat last year because Steph was Steph was out for the year, Clay was out for the year. They lost KD. It was it was very much a transition year. Do not think of last year as the future of Golden State. It was a it was a bump in the road. Golden State will be back. I can see them being a four or five seed in the West. Don't think they'll be be a contender for the finals, but they'll be in the mix. Um, you know, come June and July for the uh, Western Conference playoffs. So I think James Wiseman he's gonna be. He's going to be really good. And look, LaMelo Ball is going to be great also, but please look at this. If you're a Golden State Warriors fan, look at this from the perspective of long-term. Again, we know Clay Thompson's out for the year. It's a very awful injury, and we are wishing the best to Clay Thompson. But he will, again, he will hopefully be back for the following season. And at that point, hopefully James Wiseman is progressing as a player. So then you plug Thompson into the lineup, then you have Steph Thompson, Wiggins, Draymond, and James Wiseman, that's probably one of the best lineups in the NBA. I mean, what do you think? Look, here's the thing with Golden State. So, obviously, um, I believe that if Anthony Edwards was still on the board, that would have taken him. Edwards went number one overall. What strikes me the most is that since Steve Kerr took over the Golden State Warriors, they haven't ran out a true center. It's really been small ball. And I'm not counting that little trial, uh, you know, that little period where uh, DeMarcus Cousins started a few games. I'm not counting that. You know, they thrive under small ball. Golden State is a perimeter-oriented team. They move the ball well. They move in the transition well. That's what they do. They just run up and down the court. I don't think that uh, Kerr is used to playing with a true, you know, 90s-style big man on their roster. And I'm not necessarily saying that uh, Wiseman is going to become that center, and I'm not saying a rim protector doesn't help your game. I think, you know, rim protection is something that's underappreciated in today's game, and it's viewed as old school. You know, kind of like Dwight Howard in that era, Rudy Gobert. Rudy Gobert is like the last rim protector we have. And, you know, know, thankfully Bam Adebayo is kind of taking on that role as rim protector. Anyways... I think it's good that they have a, uh, you know, a true big man 
But I think Steve Kerr and the Warriors, especially, you know, the the core group of players, such as a Curry and a Draymond Green, that have been here and been used to Steve Kerr's system, they need to learn how to score in the post. Because, you know, Kevin Durant, when he was a member of the Warriors, can score from all over the court. You don't have Kevin Durant. I know Andrew Bogut was, like, before uh, Kerr's time, but even Bogut was not much of a scorer. Draymond Green is not a post scorer. He may think he's a post scorer, but he's not a post scorer. So I think having a low post option there is a good thing for the Warriors, but they need to figure out how to utilize it in order to succeed. It's going to take time, Jordan, and I already addressed the shortened offseason for the 2020-21 NBA season. So look, it's not a short-term fix. It's going to be a long-term solution for the Golden State Warriors' future plans. I think that they are definitely a championship contender in the next maybe five or so years, definitely not this year, but um, give the team time to gel, you know, kind of kind of develop chemistry, and the future of Golden State will be maybe as we know it in 2016, 17, 18, 19. Um, Do you think the Golden State was, dynasty is over? That's an interesting question um, because it depends how you look at the dynasty. For example, I'm going to do a, uh, a crossover reference to another sport here. What do you call the Giants, the San Francisco Giants of 2010 to 14 in Dynasty? Yes. Keep in mind they won. Keep in mind they won the World Series in 10, 12, and 14, but 13 and 15, 13 and or 11 rather. Sorry, in 2011, thir- and 13 they were awful. So like, what do you call a team Dynasty that won three years, but the middle two years they were yes. awful? And you know, baseball is a much different sport. Um, Kansas City, when they beat the Mets in 15. Uh, were one of the very few recent back-to-back World Series teams. I believe the Texas Rangers did it in maybe yeah, t- 2010, 2010 2011. 2011. It's very uncommon to even make it back-to-back years. That's why you got to appreciate teams like, you know, the big red machine of the, you know, the 1970s Cincinnati Reds. You got to appreciate those baseball teams. It is so hard to get to the World Series, you know, let alone the postseason. The Mets made the World Series in 15. Everybody from 16 to 18 expected them to be right, you know, back in the thick of things. And here we are, and they were, you know, tied for last in the East. We're getting off topic, but anyways, um, I think they're different sports. I think if we're looking at MLB, three and five years is a dynasty. I think I think in any sport, three and five years is a dynasty. That being said, it's, it's a little bit easier uh, in the NBA, we saw the same Cleveland Golden State matchup for several years. I think it's it's more of like a powerhouse oriented league. It's easier to get to the playoffs. Or put put it this way, if you're one of the top tier teams in the league, you have a clear path to the finals. If you're one of the bottom feeder teams, there's almost no surprises in the NBA. This isn't like the Miami Marlins sneaking into the playoffs this year. You generally have very little surprises. That being said, yeah, I was I was gonna say Jordan, or, um, but and then I want you to continue your point. But um, and speaking of uh, dynasties in the NBA, we have another impending dynasty with the Brooklyn Nets. No, and if the rumor if 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 the rumors are true of them signing James Harden, you pair him with KD and Kyrie. No. I think they would be better. I, I think they'd be better than Golden State was in, from fifteen I don't. to nineteen. That, that wouldn't work. Tell me why. I will tell you exactly why. It's a very simple answer. I no offense to you, Alex, but 
I think if you're like a 12-year-old middle school kid and you hear that James Harden's coming to the Nets to play with uh, Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, you get excited. And, you know, that would make me excited if I were a member of the Brooklyn Nets, you know, if part of their fan base. But there's one reason why it just doesn't work. There's only one ball. And, like, I'm not I do, yes. I'm not even wait, joking. Wait, wait, How How is that any different than when Durant, Clay Thompson, and Steph Curry teamed up? Clay Thompson was already used to being a second option. Those guys are all primary scorers. But, you know, Thompson would be the main scorer on – any other team, he was the number two option. Curry was the number one option from the get-go. The only difference is that he now had, you know, some of the load carried off of his shoulders given, you know, if if he had a poor night, he didn't have to worry about Durant scoring 25 or 30. Like, he knew it was just going to happen. It Getting Durant took pressure off Curry. And Curry is also, you know, I guess that's kind of comparable to Kyrie, like, Obviously, he's kind of a score for Kyrie's more of a score first guy, but they're both incredible playmakers. Not not to say that you know James Harden and Kevin Durant aren't playmakers, but they're scores. And Kyrie Irving needs his touches. I, I've said this before. He's a good ball handler. He's a good passer. He's a good playmaker. Kyrie's there to get buckets. He is there to set up his teammates and to get buckets. And you have. You have Spencer Dinwiddie and Karis LeVert. I'm obviously not comparing those guys to James Harden, but you have enough depth there at the guards. You don't need another ball-dominant player like Harden to take over. I don't think it works as a team. If you want to upgrade, upgrade something else. It, it just doesn't work. And to go off of, and to go off of uh, talking about Houston for a minute, what the hell is going on? Russell Westbrook wants out also. You know, from what we've heard. I mean, look, look, Jordan, this is a team that's been one of the top teams in the NBA for the past, let's say, five or six years, but they haven't even they haven't even made the finals, haven't won the finals. I think their window's closing. I mean, I, I think if Westbrook and Harden stayed here, they'd probably be another contender in the West, but I just don't see them winning the finals. Houston probably realized, look, we gave it our best, five or six-year run, two of the best players in the NBA, couldn't get it done. Got to rebuild, you know, retool for the next generation of the Rockets and, you know, see what can come of that. But I think the Harden-Westbrook era has reached its peak. I don't see, I just don't see this team winning winning the finals. I mean, if they couldn't do it from 15 to 20, why, why are they suddenly going to do it now? Right. It's not like they've added pieces, pieces. It's not like they've added pieces. If anything, they already lost Chris Paul. I know it was only for a short stint, but they had Carmelo Anthony and, you know, Clint Capella. They had, you know, Trevor Ariza. The list just goes on and on and on. They had so many quality players. If you're not going to win then, what makes you think they're going to win now? Other teams like the Lakers have done things, and the Clippers, to separate themselves from other teams, to upgrade their roster. What has Houston really done? They're kind of just sitting in the middle of the pack. So I guess... I guess the GM there is thinking if we're not going to be one of those top three teams, we might as well start to blow it up. And I think obviously a James Harden or even a Russell Westbrook trade would be the first step in that direction. I think they're going to rebuild in the next year or two. But um, go for it. Absolutely, Jordan. I just want to actually give credit. Again, I know the Rockets never really made the finals, didn't reach you know their ultimate goal. But uh, Daryl Morey, their GM for the, for the past – many years he is one of the best minds in the nba and his use of 
analytics and kind of just changing the way, um, I guess, basketball general managers and coaches view the game has really been transcendent. Um, again, I know the Rockets never won the finals, but he, he is just a phenomenal GM. Um, I've read a lot about his, his use of analytics and research and numbers, you know, kind of uh, almost like the money, but the money ball in a sense of the NBA. Uh, I know it's different because um, you can't really compare salary caps in the NBA and MLB, but um, he kind of very much invoked that philosophy of finding value where it was not very, very not very much seen by other teams. So I know, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe he was, um, is he no longer, is he no longer with the Rockets? Um, I'm not um, looking out there, but, you know, regardless, um, he did a phenomenal job in Houston and, you know, kudos to him. But I think, you know, if Houston does a, re- a rebuild for a few years, I mean, who knows, obviously, if they, who knows who they drafted in, you know, five years from now. But I think ultimately it's time to, time to rebuild uh, down in Houston. And um, like all you can say is, you know, James Harden and Russell Westbrook, you gave your all. And I just think it's the end of an era for Look, the team. And to give them credit, James Harden emerged as one of the greatest offensive players in recent history. And Mike D'Antoni, ironically uh, the Knicks' old head coach, ran one of the most successful NBA offenses in the last two, three years. He, they impressed me. So it wasn't a complete loss. They didn't accomplish what they wanted. This is me writing, by the way, this is me writing them off right now. I am officially declaring that Houston is ending his era. I think one of the names of Russell Westbrook and James Harden will not be here opening night. Latest, the trade deadline, I think that's gone. Um, so we're both Nick fans and I'm sure not a lot of people want to hear us talking about the worst team in the NBA, but I think we need to talk about the draft night. There's not many things that the Knicks do that make the fans happy. I can say I was genuinely satisfied with what they did on draft night. OB Toppin was supposed to be the fourth overall pick. The Knicks were going to end up trading either fourth or fifth trading up to go get him. They didn't give up anything to trade up. He fell to eighth, and they picked him. I think he's a great fit there. Slide him in the front court, Mitchell Robinson, and I think you have a nice young front court to develop. I think uh, another underrated thing they did was drafting uh, their other first-round pick, 25th overall, Emmanuel Quickly, a guard out of the University of Kentucky. Alex, did you know that Emmanuel Quickly was SEC Player of the Year his sophomore year? beating out even Anthony Edwards. Jordan, I did not know that. He um, beat out Anthony Edwards honestly, for SEC player of the year and he was picked 20. That's crazy. I mean, it's it's pretty crazy, pretty crazy to, to think that he slipped slipped so low in the draft. Um actually, this quick point I want to make um because I did some research over the past minute. Um I just want to correct myself. Um I initially said that Daryl Morey is still the general manager of the Rockets, but I um, I totally realized that he actually just took the job with the 76ers about a month ago. Um, so just a quick correction there. Anyway, um, New York Knicks. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I like their draft picks. I, I love the Obi Toppin pick. He was the, uh, I believe he was the All-American Player of the Year at uh, Dayton University or University of Dayton. Um, 
and he's a, he's a, he's a, he's from New York. Actually, another fun geographical fact: he is from Austin, or he went to Austin High School, which is literally the border in town to me. Um, so that, that's really cool to see. Um, but I think he's going to be a contender for Rookie of the Year this year. He is a versatile playmaker. He is a uh, he puts on a show um, in terms of dunks. Um, I think he's going to be a fan favorite at the Garden, even though even though if there are no fans at the games to begin the season, I think you know once once the Garden can fill up, whenever that may be, I think he will be a, a household name um, in Manhattan. Ironically, I think one of the most exciting things the Knicks did was after draft night when they uh, they signed free agent undrafted guard Miles Powell out of Seton Hall. When I saw the tweet that Miles Powell was going to be a Nick, I called you. I started jumping up and down and screaming in my car. I can't believe this guy went undrafted. Him and uh, him and Marcus Howard. Marcus Howard out of Marquette, obviously, the sharpshooting guard. I think the two of them combined for 5,000 college points. That's, that's like, ridiculous. And, you know, Marcus Howard went on to sign with the Denver Nuggets. I'm sure he'll start in the G League. Miles Powell still has a mountain of point guards to pass for playing time. Like, if you look at the depth chart now, I'm sure that he's behind guys like uh, Frank Nilekina and Alfred Payton, the recently uh, acquired Austin Rivers, just to name a few guys. He's probably the fifth point guard on our list. So, I'd had to if I had to guess, he's going to start in Westchester. But look. Powell's a local guy from uh, Trenton, New Jersey. All the Seton Hall fans got to watch him put on shows and, and hit 40-foot bombs. Powell's an electric scorer. It's just something the Knicks haven't had. And I, th- I think at his ceiling, he can be like a poor man's version of like a J.R. Smith or even like a John Starks. I know that he's not going to make much of an NBA impact in the beginning because I don't think he's going to be in the league. I think he'll be in Westchester. But personally, you know, it excited me, and I think it excited a lot Jordan. of fans. Yeah, now Jordan, I again, like I said, I know you know more about the college game than I do, but I know that Miles Powell was one of the best players in recent Seton Hall history. And actually, when you called me, uh, when you called me last week, one of the one of the names I threw out as a comparison, um, this is really a throwback, was Landry Fields. I mean, you know, a, kind of a, a shooting guard. Good score, but, you know, not a star player. Again, crazy. I don't know if that's a crazy comparison. I just kind of threw a name out there. I know you mentioned I'm on Shepard. Are those a couple guys you can see maybe as, you know, solid comparisons for Powell as he begins his Nick career? Honestly, no. <laughs> I don't think either one of those, right, I don't so, think uh, either one of those are comparisons, uh, really. And no, no, that, that that's totally okay. I, I want to hear, again, I know, I know, I know you're – um, more knowledgeable about you know college college ball anyway. So, what what's your prognosis for uh, his you know his young career? Look, one of the things that is known about Miles Powell is that he doesn't always take the best shots. He's kind. Of, you ever see J.R. Smith take like a ridiculous contested shot from thirty feet out, and he fades back, and everybody's shaking their head and you know going, "What the hell's he doing?" Sometimes I kind of get that from Miles Powell. So, um, you know, he was one of the best players in the Big East and in in college sports, but he kind of does – you question his shot-taking sometimes. I think 
similar comps for him. Maybe uh maybe Jimmer Fredette. Honestly, I think I think he could be a John Starks. I think his ceiling is John Starks. You know, he he's explosive. He he is a good passer, but you know, shooting's his game. I think he's like he's a volume scorer. Obviously, I went to see him uh, in person several times, and uh, the last time I was at a game it was actually uh, Jack and I. Powell didn't really shoot well. I think he only had four points at halftime. He ended the game with 25, and that was a bad night for him. My point being this, uh, Powell is a very good volume scorer. It's just whether or not the Knicks want to give him enough touches. Because you're going to have to accept that he's probably going to shoot, you know, one or two of nine from three if you give him enough touches. In all honesty, the inefficiency that we saw out of Powell recently kind of reminds me of like a Tim Hardaway Jr. Or as much as I hate to say it, R.J. Barrett last season. I don't think those are like great comparisons. I'm still sticking with uh, the J.R. Smith, maybe John Starks, a couple of former Knicks. I think Powell's a special player, but he's got to become a more efficient shooter if he wants to see NBA minutes. Absolutely, Jordan. I think that is a great, great, great analysis. Um, and hopefully he can develop when he's playing down in Westchester. Again, shout out to the 914 um, Westchester Knicks. Um, but yeah, uh, hopefully uh, he can develop down with the Westchester Knicks in the G League and you know earn, earn his way up to the uh, NBA. Exactly. Um, now there's so much more we can talk about with the the New York Knicks and the NBA as a whole. I think we're gonna. Uh, just make you all tune in next week if you want to get the rest of our take along with Jack. I think one last point before we wrap up episode four of Touch Em All. I just want to touch up on the uh, uh, Hall of Fame ballot for 2021 for Major League Baseball. So the BBWAA, the Baseball Writers Association of America, recently came out with their official Hall of Fame ballot for 2021. Now, obviously, you have returnees such as Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, etc. But I'm going to read you some of the names of the first ballot players. The guys on here for the first time. And then I want to hear your thoughts. Those players are Michael Kadire, Latroy Hawkins. Oh, my God. Nick Swisher. <laughs> AJ Burnett. Shane Victorino. Aramis Ramirez. Barry Zito. Dan Heron, Tori Hunter, Mark Burley, and Tim Hudson. Alex, what's your take? I mean, initial observation: none of those guys, none of those guys, scream Hall of Famer to me. I mean, especially when we're comparing guys like Sammy Sosa, or not Sammy Sosa, like Barry Bonds, uh, who are all all, all the PD guys. Look, I don't think they should be in the Hall of Fame either. But in terms of talent, those guys. Definitely um, outweighed any of these new guys. I mean, look, nothing against Barry Zito, Torrey Hunter, Nick Swisher, and the rest of the and the rest of the first ballot players, but I don't I don't really see a case, well, especially for first ballot, definitely not. But I don't see any of those guys making it at all. I mean, they all had solid careers. I mean, I think the one guy or maybe the two guys who might have a case, Barry Zito, and. Tim Hudson, I mean, especially Tim Hudson. I know he um, he was a star for the Oakland A's um, early 2000s. Barry Zito, uh, someone as well. Torrey Hunter, you know, he 
few very a few very solid years with Minnesota and Anaheim. Nick Swisher, he bounced around between White Sox, Oakland, Yankees, again, you know, solid hitter. Um, Aramis Ramirez, again, you know, great player with Milwaukee and Chicago Cubs. You're naming some really great players here, Jordan, but do any of these players scream Hall of Famer to you? I mean, Hall of Famer. This is this is the Hall of Fame that in which only one player ever has been unanimous, Mariano Rivera. So if only one player out of hundreds of amazing baseball players, you know, over 100 years of history, have been unanimous, this is obviously a very selective group. I mean, keep, keep in mind that Derek Jeter also was one vote shy of unanimous. So the, some of these voters out here are very critical of, you know, what a player's career resume needs to be in, ter- in, in order to make the Hall of Fame. But again, I, I would have to do some further thought of it. Also, I don't have a vote, so um, it's not like I'm, you know, submitting a vote here. But just as a baseball fan of the game, I just don't see these players earning entry into Cooperstown. And like I said, don't even, you know, first first ballot, man. That's not even a consideration for these guys. Only the best, only the best of the bet, only the best of the best make uh, first ballot. And I, again, I don't see any of those names uh, stacking up there. However... One, uh, one, uh, one name who I do want to mention, and this could just be a short conversation because I know we're planning on wrapping up the podcast soon. Um, Barry Bonds, I mean, all time, all time home run king. You all know the story. Um, he has some of the most insane numbers on a season by season and a career basis of that we'll ever see again in uh, in MLB. But his numbers in the ballot have been st- uh, have been steadily uh, going up over the past several years, um, and he, he needs 75%, um, of, of, of the year's vote to be enshrined, and I think, uh, I think last year, again, this is very much, an, uh, very much an estimate of, um, what I remember, but I think he got close to maybe 60, anywhere between 65 and 68%, again, I could be wrong, but that's a guess, um, that's pretty close to 75%, and again, he's been, he's been, uh, climbing upwards, and his his resume is you know it speaks for itself, but his PED allegations and um, his history of PED use is clearly a roadblock towards his candidacy. Um, so a question I just want I have here for you, Jordan. Do you think, and I do you think Bonds? And I also want to preface that I think this is his last year of eligibility before his uh, ten years expires. Do you think Bonds? Um, you think he'll make it in, or do you think? Um, do you think the I guess the PED the anti anti PED Hall of Famer voters will have no um no exception for Bonds. They know they know his history of uh, drug use, and they're not gonna not gonna give him a pass. Look, I think you made several good points. Uh, first of all, I just want to correct you. This is actually Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens' ninth season on the ballot. So it used to be fifteen. They lowered it to ten. They still have one additional year after this year. That being said, I just want to touch up on your point earlier about uh, the, the first ballot guys. So you, you hit the nail right on the head. There is nobody here. Now, I don't want to disrespect these guys. You know, Barry Zito, you know, uh, Aramis Ramirez. These are some of the better players we've had in the last couple of decades. They are. No disrespect. But they're not Hall of Famers. They're certainly not first ballot Actually, fun fact here, 
I'm a big wins above replacement guy, you know, otherwise known as war. And um, the average Hall of Famer has a war of 69. So they say the, you know, the magical threshold you want to be is within uh, 50 to 70. I think that's about a, I think a third of the active Hall of Famers, excuse me. I think a third of the Hall of Fame players fall within that 50 to 70 wins range with the average being 69. The closest guy to that number of the first ballot is surprised me too. It's actually Mark Burley with 59 wins above replacement. And just to put that in perspective, Barry Bonds has a war of 162. So I think the, the first ballot is very underwhelming. You know, it, it's cool to see Tim Hudson and Barry Zito on the same ballot together. But personally, I wouldn't vote for them. I don't think they're getting in. Now, to go off of that uh, 70 war, excuse me, you know, the 69 war average, there's only, uh, there's only a couple players who actually meet that criteria besides Clemens and Bonds. And they are Kurt Schilling, Scott Rowland, and very narrowly, just barely, Manny Ramirez. Believe it or not, Manny is at 69. You know, that's just Manny being Manny, honestly. Of course, his war has to equal 69. But that's the case of Manny being Manny. Anyways, to go back to your original question, no, I don't think Bonds and Clemens should get in. Will they get in? Honestly, they probably will. I mean, I'm, uh, Bonds and Clemens both received about 60% of the votes of the 75% needed. I believe in past years they were, you know, they're up from 30 to 40%. So the younger fans are in, the younger fans kind of hear the legends of Bonds and Clemens and they say oh these are two of the greatest baseball players of all time they deserve to be in Cooperstown and that's a fair argument but look I'm I have a very strong belief if you if if you alter your performance in any possible way you're not in the Hall of Fame I don't think Pudge Rodriguez should go in the Hall of Fame, and I don't want to go on the record and say that he's a steroid user because I don't know that, but if we're playing a guessing game, I'd say that Pudge probably did it. There's other guys in the Hall of Fame who probably did it. Jose Canseco, you know, I'm sure you've heard the interview. Canseco said he uh, he used to stir Canseco milkshakes for uh, an active Hall of Fame player, so there are guys in there. I don't like it, but I think this is a theme of baseball, just not caring about cheating. They don't. The fact that Pete sure, yeah, so is still banned from Cooperstown is beyond me. It, I, I don't get it. The fact that you had the Houston scandal in 17 and the Boston scandal in 18, and after missing you know just a 60-game season worth of suspensions, Alex Cora and A.J. Hinch are both back as managers. All the players got bonuses, and, you know, Houston and Boston keep their championships. Nobody bats an eye. I, I think nobody cares about cheating anymore. Well, Jordan, I will say, um, and this is kind of a more of a longer conversation that we could have on another podcast, but do you think the Astros cheating scandal will ultimately diminish any, any Hall of Fame chan- chances 
again, again, I'm not saying they'll make it, but the possibility. Do you think it'll diminish if for guys like Springer, Correa, Altuve, etc.? No. And actually, to give off, uh, actually to bring up a more recent example of this, I'd have to talk about Carlos Beltran because he's going to be on the ballot in a couple of years. And if it weren't for the scandal, you know, numbers show it all. Beltron is, in my opinion, a first ballot Hall of Famer. He's one of the greatest center fielders of all time. So I would still vote for Carlos Beltron, even though he had his involvement with uh, the Houston Astros. So my answer is no. I don't think it'll turn off voters. I think if Altuve puts together a Hall of Fame resume and Springer and Correa, whoever, they're still going to get the Hall of Fame votes. I, I mean, I, I agree with you because, I mean, again, I am no, in no way uh, an advocate for what the Astros did, but I do think there's a difference between the cheating the Astros collective team did and the individual cheating guys like Clemens and Bonson. Bon. So does that make sense? Yeah, so actually, on, on just a very personal uh, opinion of mine, I think if you do, if you use any substance that's that's the end of it. I'm not saying what Pete Rose did wasn't harmful. I'm not saying it wasn't wrong. But the fact that he's banned for life for betting on his own team to win is insane when you have guys like Bonds and Clemens involved in probably the biggest steroid scandal of baseball history. One of the biggest cheating instances in professional sports and this is their ninth year on the Hall of Fame ballot, it doesn't make sense. Put Pete Rose on the Hall of Fame ballot. If you're going to kick Pete Rose out of baseball for betting on his own team to win, then you need to get rid of every Houston Astros player and executive from baseball and ban them too. It doesn't make sense why you're just picking and choosing. And Jordan, I, I, I totally, and fully, totally and fully agree with you. I'm just thinking here from the perspective of MLB in the Pete Rose uh, case. I I know that he bet for the Cincinnati Reds, which was his team that he played on and managed. But I think that creates a slippery slope because betting is clearly against the rules for not only baseball but any professional and probably collegiate sport. Um, you know, betting on your own sport. So I just don't want to see kind of a a slippery slope. You know, if if Rose gets in, then say another player starts safe or another player or players start betting, which is again, clearly against the rules. I don't want kind of um, that precedent to be sent. I I do like that Pete Rose is, you know, getting involved more with MLB in terms of he's a, he's a phenomenal analyst for MLB on Fox. I don't know if, if you or anyone else has watched some of his clips. Um, he's, he's phenomenal. On MLB on Fox, MLB on Fox pregame, but I saw one clip probably a few years ago, when he did a five- or six-minute segment on um, his approach to hitting. I don't care if you're a baseball player or not. It was one of the best baseball just analysis videos I've ever seen. Um, so, look, I it's such a tough call on Pete Rose because, just because of the issue of precedence, and I don't want other players doing the same mistake he did. But I do think that he should still be involved in the league in other ways. I mean... I think that if he can become more involved with the Cincinnati Reds and or MLB, that'd be awesome to see. And, you know, kind of set an example, a good example for the rest of the league. Hall of Fame, I mean, look, 
I would love to see him get in. I just don't see MLB in its current uh, setup doing so. Um, Look, Manfred's never yeah, going to allow it. That's my take. Manfred's never going to let it happen. Ironically, the, si- oh, I, the same commissioner that just pardoned the Astros and the Red Sox from cheating is not even considering reinstating Pete Rose. We know as long as Manfred is commissioner, Pete Rose is going to stay out. I know Pete, people don't think that Pete... I know that people support Pete Rose staying out of Major League Baseball, but I'm one of those who are in favor of reinstating Rose. All right, so we've had our fun on the podcast, and unfortunately, all good things have to come to an end, so we're going to wrap it up here. But before we go, I want to touch up on what we've been discussing, the Hall of Fame ballot. Um, So the ballot isn't officially, the results aren't released until January, so we're not going to know for several weeks what ends up happening. And trust me, we're going to go into much more detail in future episodes. But just looking at the ballot right now, who would you vote in? Keep in mind, you're allowed up to 10 Hall of Fame votes. Trust me, I don't think you're going to need all 10 this year. But if you were to vote for anybody, what's your ballot this year, assuming you were to have one? Um... This is a tough, tough question because I, I don't want to break my stance of PED, PED use. I, I don't want to vote for any of the PED guys. That uh, that eliminates, you know, Manny Ramirez, Bonds, Clemens, etc. But I also don't think any of the players, of the first ballot players, are deserving, you know, enough to get in, at least on first ballot. Um, and then the rest of the ballot is just kind of middle ground for me, too. I mean... I mean, is it unprecedented for me to say I don't think any of the 2021 nominees should get in? No, it isn't. Actually, I believe the the first year Mike Piazza was on the ballot. That might have been 2014. That was the first year in several years that nobody was inducted into Cooperstown. And I don't think that's crazy, and it might actually happen. However, I'm going to go a different route. I agree with you. I don't think anybody on the first year ballot is getting in. And I don't want to vote for the steroid guys either. I don't think anybody in between is a surefire Hall of Famer. But if I had a vote, I would vote for the following players who are underappreciated by many. Kurt Schilling, Scott Rowland, Billy Wagner. That's my ballot. Interesting. Interesting. So... You have a uh, you have a, one of the best clo- you have one of the best closers of the two thousands. You have one of the best Red Sox pitchers of the two thousands, and he was a key to their World Series victory. And then Scott Rowland, which a standout third baseman for the Cardinals. Um, I guess my question is, and just to quickly wrap up, um, if you had only pick one of those players, because you know all all three kind of have similar chances of making the Hall of Fame, in my opinion. If you could only pick one of them to make the Hall, which one would you pick? And give a 30-second uh, you know, summary as to why. All right. I'm actually going to cheat and give you two answers because I mentioned those three guys. I actually left out one more, and I feel terrible that I didn't mention him. But Omar Vizquel, phenomenal player, one of the greatest defensive players I've ever seen. He would get my Hall of Fame vote. He received 52% of the votes. He uh, 
He's only in his fourth year, so he has time to make it. And I think kind of like Edgar Martinez did several years ago, Vizquel is trending upwards. So I think within the next six, seven years, he might have the ability to sneak into Cooperstown and get that 75% in maybe year eight or year nine. That being said, my answer is going to be Billy Wagner. Look, we know that longtime uh, Cardinals reliever Lee Smith is, you know, one of the greater relief pitchers ever. But I think it is just blasphemous that Lee Smith is in the Hall of Fame and Billy Wagner isn't. I think when you look at relief pitchers, Mariano Rivera's tier one, obviously. He's his own tier. And then you have, you know, guys kind of like Dennis Eckersley, Goose Gossage. What, what about uh, Trevor Hoffman? Obviously Trevor Hoffman, too. But, you know, Moe's in his own class. Moe's in his own class. Then I think you have Goose and Eckersley. And guys already in Cooperstown, such as them, as well as Trevor Hoffman. After that, it's Billy Wagner. You can't, you can't really argue that Wagner isn't one of the greatest players of all time. I think he has 424 big league saves. He has the highest uh, strikeout per nine innings of any player in MLB history. That's dominance. He is the most dominant reliever I've ever seen in my life. And I know that's with a little bit of bias. Obviously, I, I grew up watching him as the closer of those Mets teams back in, you know, 06 and 07. But Wagner deserves credit. He only received 27% of the vote last year. So, unlike Vizquel, I don't think Wagner's ever getting in. But that's my answer. Billy Wagner is one of the most electric and dominant relievers of his generation and of all time. And he's so underappreciated, it makes me sick. Well, that's great to hear, Jordan. Well, thank you for your uh, for your analysis, for your very in depth analysis on the uh, for the Hall of Fame uh, voting, and you know, uh, we will check back in in about a month or I guess a month and a half, two months on once the results have been you know announced and finalized. We will kind of give our analysis of of, of the results and um, takeaways from that. Um, so I think we're just going to wrap up here in a few minutes. As Jordan mentioned earlier, um, to you all, thank you all for listening. Um, it's always a pleasure. And as Jordan also mentioned, um, we missed Jack today, um, but we are we are excited to have him back uh, next week. Um, Jack, you're 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 an integral part of this podcast, and it would not be the same, or it is not the same without you. Um, which kind of leads me into my last piece. I know Jack, our college football guru, is not here, but I wanted to just do a quick minute or two on college football. The first uh, playoff rankings were announced today, and the first um, the first round of the rankings goes as following: Alabama is one, Notre Dame is two, Clemson is three, Ohio State is four. I think Alabama is going to win the whole thing. At first, I thought it would be Clemson, but Alabama is dominating every opponent. But one thing that is surprising is I'm very surprised that Clemson checks in ahead of Ohio State. I know that Clemson's one loss was without Trevor Lawrence, but I think Ohio State's you know been as, if not more dominant than Clemson, plus they have um, an undefeated record. I know they um, narrowly got by Indiana, but they still have an undefeated record, and I think Clemson is, look, they're still phenomenal, but they're not. They're possibly not as good as we all had expected. This one team I want to highlight quickly, in which I would absolutely love to see get into the playoff, is Northwestern, um, coming out of Evanston, Illinois, 
Currently, they're eighth in the um, college football playoff rank, and they are eleventh in the AP poll. If Northwestern can run the table the rest of the regular season, they have three fairly winnable games against Big Ten teams. They can get to the Big Ten championship game in Indianapolis against Ohio State. Look, I know it's a long shot, but they just beat Wisconsin. If if Northwestern can somehow somehow beat Ohio State in the Big Ten championship, they will make the playoff, and that'll be amazing to see. I mean, Northwestern has been a bottom feeder in the in the Big Ten for most of the past. You know, decade, several years. Um, to see them get in would be awesome. I I watched that game against Wisconsin last week, and uh, Wisconsin, I believe they were ten and a half point favorites, and Wisconsin not, uh, excuse me, Northwestern knocked them off. Um, that'd be awesome to see. Another team that'd be great to see get in is Cincinnati. They're steamrolling all their opponents, um, unfortunately, because they're in a, um, in a in a group of five conference in the American Athletic. I just don't think I don't see them having a chance. Actually, um, Jack and I were talking today, and um, we saw a a, uh, a data graphic online that showed Cincinnati has the fourth. Excuse me, Cincinnati has the fourth highest odds to make the playoff, um, as currently um, as currently um, the standings uh, show. So if Cincinnati got in, which I don't think they will, they'd they'd be four. They'd face Alabama. Um, to quote to quote Jack, um, Alabama would win by fifty. Um, and Jack, I have to agree with you there, man. I know Cincinnati's great, but when you when you put a, a group of five team again, like Cincinnati again, they're dominant. But you put them against Alabama, uh, the the tide is gonna uh, the tide will roll past them. Uh, pun intended. Um, but that's my that's my uh, short take on college football. Uh, I think it's, it's it's a crazy season, as we all know. I mean, we see we see over a dozen games each week nowadays get postponed because of COVID. Um, and obviously, we all want to do, you know, you know, what is safe, and we all want to take precautions. You know, we don't want to play games in which there is any risk. Um, but because there are so many postponements and cancellations, the standings are going to just be crazy at the end of the year. We're going to have some teams playing three games, four games, others that are playing nine and ten. Um, but, yeah, so the rankings were released today. And, I mean, I, 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 Jack, uh, I want to say that Jack really got me into college football this season. And uh, you know, I I don't really have I I don't have a specific allegiance to a specific team, but I just love watch watching college football. It's super exciting. Um, so thank you, Jack, uh, for getting me uh more into the sport. Um, but yeah, that's my quick uh take. Actually, one last point uh before uh, I hand it over to Jordan again. Um, I also um I also really like um BYU. They're I think eight no now, but they're they're ranked fourteen in the poll, which I think is ridiculous. I know they're not playing the best opponents, but they're eight. No, they should at least be uh, top ten. At least they gotta have some type of shot at the playoff. Um, which again, I don't think that'll happen because they're an independent. But that that that's what happens when you're a team like Cincinnati or BYU. You're not playing obviously in the Big Ten or SEC. It's gonna it's gonna hurt you in terms of in terms of scheduling. Um, but if if some crazy things happen at the top, if Ohio State loses, if Bama loses, maybe BYU finds a way in. Um, there's been some talk about them playing a a, a game against Cincinnati. Um, that'd be really interesting to see. Um, like a, a game against Cincinnati to determine the last playoff spot. So that'll be crazy if that happens. Anyway, um, again, yeah. So now I'm actually done with college football. Um, NFL will address next week when Jack is back. And um, actually, just Jordan, I want to hand it over to you before we end. Um, another week has gone by. The Jets lost again in a heartbreaker against the Chargers. Do you still think they'll go 0-16, or do you think they'll pull out a, a win? 
we're on episode four at this point. Don't even talk to me about the Jets. I'm just trying to move on and wait till Trevor Lawrence decides to stay in Clemson another year and not go to the Jets. So just don't even talk about that, it. The Knicks, the Knicks that, are that, tied that, that, for first is... in the East. They're 0-0. They're tied for first. Big Daddy Cohen is going to, uh, you know, buy us Springer and Bauer and whoever else. So I'm trying to just not think about the Jets at this point, please. Jordan, Jordan, I know, I know, I know you're a uh, passionate Jets fan, but that's hilarious. And I think you have the right attitude. Just look ahead to the 2021 season, and I guess all we can say is, you know, moving on. And uh, Wait, the Knicks are undefeated. Good riddance. Good. Let's just roll with and, that. Yeah, and all, all we can say is, is we got to move on and good riddance to the 2020 Jets. Um, but yeah, you know, again, uh, awesome episode. Um, again, not the same without Jack Weidenberger. Um, we miss you, man. But you know. We'll see you soon back on uh, Touch Them All podcast for episode five. Um, anyway, um, Jordan, this has been fun. Um, you know, like you said, really, really reminded me of uh, the days back in Walson Hall at Muhlenberg, um, you know, recording uh, recording in the, in the radio studio. Um, it's It's been a while, but always a, good, always a pleasure, bro. Uh, you know, looking forward to episode five and uh, – like like you said, lots lots to look forward to. Still early in the NBA and the MLB offseason. Um, exciting times ahead in the sports world. Anyway, guys, uh, this is Alex Horowitz uh, signing off, and uh, I will speak to you next time. All right, take care. Yeah, man, this has been a lot of fun. Um, this is one of the few bright spots of being stuck in uh, COVID and having to miss my uh, fall semester at Muhlenberg. This is one of the lone bright spots, so I'm genuinely, I'm, I'm genuinely thankful for you and Jack and for all the listeners out there. This is really the highlight of my week, so thank you guys for tuning in, and I hope you'll be back with us next week. You can listen to us on Anchor.fm, on Spotify, on Apple Music, and pretty much anywhere podcasts are available. All you have to do is search Touch Em All Podcasts, and you'll find us. Once again, we appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you for tuning in. For Alex Horowitz and Jack Weinberger back home, this is Jordan Leopold signing off. Have a good night.